Hi, you're listening to Bonus Points, the official podcast of Mr. Astle's Theology Class. Join us as we put out into the deep and explore the world of theology and beyond. Today, we're answering more questions from you, the listener. Let's begin. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Bonus Points. Today we're tackling more of your questions in another episode of Question and Astle. Of course, we can't dive in without mentioning that this past weekend marked the first anniversary of Bonus Points. Episode 1 came out a year ago, this past Saturday on January 21st, 2022, and then the first episode with substantial content on the theology of Jurassic Park came out just three days later. I've mentioned this before, but when I hit record on that first episode, I had no idea whether this was something I was going to keep doing. I have a tendency to start projects and never finish them, so the fact that I'm still recording this a year later says something. No matter what the viewer count is, this is a success for me. Now, I was going to apologize for the somewhat spotty release schedule recently. Um, As you know, I'm typically pretty consistent with new episodes every Monday, but the last couple weeks have been a little more hit or miss. I was going to talk about how the end of our marking period, our, our grading marking period, coincided with oral surgery that prevented me from talking for several days, and so I didn't have time to either plan an episode or record one. But then I remembered something I said way back in episode one. I said that I was going to try to stick to a consistent schedule, but I had no idea if this was going to happen. And of course, since then, I mostly have, but I hope you'll forgive me if I've been hit or miss the last few weeks. Now that we are getting into the groove of the third marking period, my mouth is healing, I can talk again, Um, we should be back to our regularly scheduled programming. Anyway, enough of that. Today's episode is another question in Astel, which these are always some of my favorite episodes to record. As always, our questions represent a wide variety of topics and interests, and I only hope that I can do them justice. So without further ado, let's dive in. Our first question asks, angels mentioned in the Bible are male. Are all angels male? Do angels have gender? What are the differences in the duties of each type of angel? So, throughout the Bible, we see people encountering angels with some regularity. We've spoken about angels before in previous episodes, including in one of the first episodes of Question and Astel, I think. Uh, We talked about slapping your guardian angel and your guardian angel slapping you. As we've mentioned before, when we talk about angels in scripture were referring to beings that are pure spirits. Unlike humans who have both a body and a soul, angels are all soul, no body. If angels do not have bodies, then they don't have any characteristics that are proper to embodied creatures. This would include things like a physical appearance and a gender, since gender is based on physicality. So, Even though all of the named angels in scripture have traditionally masculine names, Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, they are not males. When angels appear to people in scripture, they do take on a certain form or appearance. After all, you can't see something that is purely spirit, so if an angel wants to be seen by somebody, it must take on an appearance. 
Because these appearances are not their true bodies, again, since they don't have bodies, they're able to use their appearance to serve a purpose. For example, in Revelation and some of the Old Testament prophets, angels appear as terrifying beings with many eyes and many wings. This appearance is meant to symbolize their role, especially those that are always beholding God in heaven. Other times, though, angels take on appearances that seem totally normal. In fact, in the book of Tobit, Tobias makes an entire journey with the archangel Raphael and thinks he's just a regular dude the whole time. So, sometimes in scripture, angels do take on the appearance of a human, and often they take on the appearance of male humans, but that does not mean the angels are actually males since they don't have gender. Now, the second half of the question mentioned the different duties and roles of angels, so let's talk about that. Scripture itself refers to various tasks that angels are given, and tradition has divided the angels into nine choirs, or nine groups, each with their own task or area of dominion. Strictly speaking, the word angel would only apply to those spirits who are sent to accomplish a task on earth or communicate a message to us. The word angel comes from the Greek angelion, or messenger, so if we want to be pedantic about it, we would use the word angel only to refer to those spirits who are sent with messages for us from God. However, we more often use the word angel to refer to all of those spirits who are in the service of God, and we contrast them from demons who are spirits opposed to God. Of the angels we see in scripture, we can see that they're often given the truly angelic role of being messengers on God's behalf. Others are assigned to protect people or nations, such as our guardian angels. Finally, others are fully devoted to the worship of God in heaven. And one day, I'd like to do a full episode on the nine choirs of angels. Our next two questions come to us courtesy of listener Abel R. First, he asks, what animal comes up the most in the Bible and why? So I'm not going to lie. When I first read this question, I thought it would be pretty straightforward. I mean, how hard could it be to find some good data on animals in the Bible? Almost immediately... I ran into a methodology issue. What counts as an animal? Would we include humans on that list? Because if so, humans are definitely mentioned more than any other animal. Would animal refer to any living creature that's not a plant? Would we include fantastic beasts like the sea monsters that are mentioned occasionally? Or would we only count animals that we can definitely identify as real animals? That brings up a second problem. Sometimes we encounter Hebrew words in the Old Testament that clearly refer to some kind of animal, but we're not totally sure what animal was being referred to. All that said, even by the most conservative ways of counting, the Bible mentions well over a hundred different species. Most of them would have been common in the ancient Near East, even if not all of them can be found there today. Thankfully, Abel is not asking us to list all of the animals in the Bible, just the one that's listed or that, that is mentioned the most frequently. So here's our here's the criteria I used. We're excluding people because humans were not considered animals by any of the biblical authors. We're also excluding terms that refer to large categories of animals. For example, the word we usually translate as beasts would refer to pretty much any animal that travels on land by walking. 
That's more of a general term than a specific animal. So I wouldn't count bird as a specific animal, but I would count each appearance of doves or eagles or other kinds of birds that are mentioned. Finally, I'm searching using the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. Other translations may render some of these terms differently, so you may get slightly different numbers if you do a search of your own, but it should be close. Okay, so what's the answer? Based on my search, the most frequently mentioned animal is sheep, which makes sense when you think about it. My search turned up 202 occurrences of the word sheep, 195 occurrences of the word lamb or lambs, and 246 occurrences of ram or rams. Altogether, that is 643 mentions of sheep. By the way, if you're starting to doze off, that's just because we're counting sheep. Anyway, the next closest animal that I could find is goats at 142. So there you go, sheep. Abel also asked why this is, and I think there are a variety of good answers. On the literal level, sheep were part of everyday life. No matter what you did for a living, you were going to encounter sheep pretty regularly. And then once the temple was instituted, Sheep and lambs were an essential part of the sacrifices that every Jew was expected to offer on a regular basis. Not only that, they were the central component of the most important sacrifice of the year, the Paschal sacrifice made every Passover. And then, of course, on the spiritual level, we know Jesus is the Lamb of God and Jesus is the Good Shepherd, so it makes sense that lambs and sheep are going to be mentioned frequently in Scripture. Speaking of scripture, Abel also asks, I really want to start reading my Bible more, but I don't know where to start. Any advice? First of all, Abel, that is a very good desire. We would all do well to spend more time reading scripture, um, especially this time of year. You know, this episode's coming out in January. Many people are who are listening may have made New Year's resolutions about reading the Bible more, or you might even be trying to read the whole thing this year. Good. <laughs> Whether that's you or not, if you've ever picked up a Bible and thought, I should read this more, you probably got overwhelmed very quickly. Perhaps you're one of those people who opened the front cover, started with Genesis 1, and just went for it. If that's you, I bet you probably got bogged down somewhere near the end of Exodus or the beginning of Leviticus. The problem is, the books of Scripture are not arranged to make the best reading experience from cover to cover you know, the way we're used to reading a book. If we try to make the Bible something it's not, we usually have a bad time. So here are three things that have been personally helpful for me when it, when it comes to making the Bible more accessible. There are certainly other good approaches, but I thought of these ones because these are the things that have impacted me the most. First, start with the Gospels. If you're already pretty familiar with Scripture or with your faith, Start with Matthew, read through all four Gospels, slowly, prayerfully. When you're done, start over. St. Therese of Lisieux once said, But above all, it's the Gospels that occupy my mind when I'm at prayer. My poor soul has so many needs, and yet this is the one thing needful. I'm always finding fresh lights there, hidden meanings which had meant nothing to me hitherto. And that's St. Therese. So if, if St. Therese, who was a professional prayer, right? A cloistered Carmelite nun. 
if she is saying there's inexhaustible light in the Gospels, I'm confident saying, yeah, read the Gospels, start over, you're going to keep finding new stuff. If maybe you're less familiar with the Gospels or less familiar with, with Scripture in general or the faith in general, I would actually suggest starting with Mark. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest, it gets right to the point, and it's written for an audience with a short attention span. So it, it forms a nice introduction. If you're just looking for like the, the main story, and then you can go back and read Matthew and Luke and John and, and kind of build from there. But either way, my suggestion, start with the Gospels. Aside from the Gospels, another good place to start is the Psalms. I know I've talked in previous episodes about how much I love the Psalms. You really can't go wrong. Skim the headings until you find one that matches what you're feeling, or just pick one at random and pray for all those who are experiencing what it's describing. Okay, let's say you've spent some time praying with scripture, and you want to start branching out a little bit, or maybe you want to pray with the Bible and you're not sure what passage to use. You sit down and you, you, know, you go to the church, you go to the chapel, you have your Bible. Okay, what now? What I'll do usually is I'll read the daily readings that the church reads at Mass for that, for that day. Um, the readings at Mass, not only on Sundays but every day, are not random. They're laid out in a book called the Lectionary, and they cover a pretty substantial percentage of the Bible over the course of three years. So each weekday, you'll get either a passage from the Old or New Testament, a psalm, and a gospel. On Sundays, you'll get typically a reading from the Old Testament, a psalm, a reading from the New Testament letters, and a gospel. And usually they're, they're just the right length for prayer. Like if you're going to sit down and, and have maybe half an hour of prayer, they're, they're perfectly sized. You're not going to get overwhelmed. There's not too much but there is enough there to, to nourish your prayer. And I'm going to have a link in the show notes to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops because they have a really handy button right on the main page of their website that will show you the daily readings. So there is, you can buy a hand missile that, that will have the readings in it. That's what I typically use. But if you don't have one, you can also just go there and it'll tell you, hey, here are the readings for today. Finally, let's say you are ready to tackle the whole Bible. I can't say enough good things about Father Mike Schmidt's Bible in a Year podcast. Of all the Bible in a Year reading programs I've ever done, this was by far the most engaging. What I found most helpful was how it usually included three different readings, and one was almost certainly from one of the narrative books. So, even on the days when you might be spending some time in, in the laws of Leviticus or a genealogy, you also had a story from another part of the Bible, and you had something from one of the wisdom books. The last thing I have to say about this. The best way to start reading the Bible is to read the Bible. Don't wait until you have the perfect reading plan or the perfect translation or the perfect passage or the perfect Bible reading chair, whatever. Just start. Listener Max J asks, can Christians believe in the multiverse theory? It seems like an easy question, but that would mean that God would have to supervise trillions of other universes full of millions of galaxies. If so, does God only watch over us or everyone? So for those unaware of what Max is talking about here, 
Multiverse theory refers to, it's actually a set of theories about the structure of reality. It posits that our universe is not the only universe, but is part of a collection of universes called the multiverse. As far as I know, the church doesn't have a clear stance on multiverse theory, but from what I can tell, it is acceptable for Catholics and other Christians to accept. When it comes to most scientific questions, the church is going to leave it to the scientists. We believe that good science and good religion will never conflict, so we shouldn't be afraid to follow the evidence. If genuine scientific research detects that this seems to be the structure of reality, then all right, let's go with that. But to address the second part of your question, whether there is one universe or many, we know that God is the creator of them all. We also know that since he is omniscient, since he is all-knowing, he would have direct knowledge of every universe, not just ours. God is beyond space and time, and so he is beyond the universe or universes, no matter how many there are. Whether there's one or multiple, we know that God is watching over them, God created them, and because he's God, even though we can't conceptualize a God who can simultaneously have direct knowledge of every universe, but that's what omniscience means, is, is that God does have that complete knowledge. So, one universe, many universes, one God. Our next question comes from listener Owen A., who asks, can the Vatican declare war on another nation? In previous episodes, we have mentioned how Vatican City is a sovereign state. It is the smallest country in the world. Though it is entirely surrounded by the city of Rome, Vatican City is not part of Rome, or part of Italy for that matter. Vatican City has diplomatic relations with other countries, just like you would expect from a sovereign nation. It has ambassadors and embassies. It enters into treaties with other countries. This is all managed by a part of the Roman Curia. The Roman Curia is, is like the government of the Catholic Church, and part of the Curia is called the Secretariat of State. The Secretariat is divided into two halves called sections, and one of them is called the Section for Relations with States. It's overseen by the Vatican Secretary of State and the Secretary for Relations with States, who functions as the Vatican's foreign minister. While the modern state of Vatican City has never declared war on another country since its creation in 1929, I don't see any reason why it couldn't, in theory. And if you're a history buff, you know that before the modern Vatican City state existed, we had the Papal States, and they certainly had no problem going to war. Considering the fact that the closest thing the Vatican has to an army is a few hundred Swiss Guard, it's unlikely that we'll see the Pope drawing up battle plans anytime soon. But you never know. Next up, we have a question from listener AJS. AJ asks, After Jesus rose from the dead, why didn't the Pharisees and others that hated Jesus just kill him again? Did they not know he had risen, or were they just in too much shock? Thank you for the question, AJ. My guess is that they would have if they could have. The Pharisees certainly heard reports of the resurrection and were immediately not okay with it. In Matthew 28, we see the Pharisees bribe the Roman soldiers who were at the tomb and instruct them to tell people that Jesus' disciples came to steal the body and perpetrate a hoax. 
So right away, they knew about the rumors of the resurrection, and they were very keen to get a lid on this thing. So why didn't they just kill him again? After all, that's what they tried to do with Lazarus after he was raised. If we look at John's gospel, we see, um, you know, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It makes a whole big thing. Right after that, they planned to kill him again. <laughs> they were going to take him out. Um, in the case of Jesus, though, it wouldn't have been so easy. In the Gospels, we have a few examples of Jesus appearing to his disciples after the resurrection, and he can be elusive. Often, he appears and disappears at will, even in locked rooms. When he does show up, his appearance is often different than it had been before the crucifixion. In fact, many of his followers failed to recognize him on multiple occasions. These, this all would have made it very hard for the Pharisees to kill him again. I'm sure they would have liked to, though. Our next listener asks, Are we living through the events of Revelation? I ask this because the Euphrates River is drying up, and that is one of the events of Revelation. So this listener is probably referring to Revelation 16.12. In the midst of a series of plagues, one of them refers to the Euphrates River drying up. And right now, the Euphrates is experiencing a decrease in its flow. It's hard to say whether this is really drying up or whether it's just part of the normal cycle of ebbs and flows that rivers go through. For the sake of this question, though, let's assume the river really is going to dry up. This wouldn't automatically mean that the events from Revelation are happening, but it might. Here's why. When we look at the book of Revelation, it can be hard to pin down a timeline of events. John experiences a series of visions that seem kind of detached from time. He sees the end of the world one second, the beginning of time the next, and it can be hard to tell what's going on. We know that the first few chapters are describing the situation of the church in the first century, since they contain letters to different churches that were present in the ancient Near East. We also know that the last two chapters are describing the end of the world, since they talk about things like the second coming and the final judgment. Now the question is, what about everything in between? Everything from chapter 4 to chapter 20 or 21 are those events happening in the past, the future, or both? The first of these, there, there are three approaches to this question. The first one is known as futurism, and it's the one that most people are probably familiar with. Futurism says that most of Revelation is dealing with events in the future, specifically at the end of time or near the end of time. It might be a very literal description of the end of the world. It might be a symbolic description. But futurism says all of these events you see throughout Revelation are in the future at some point. Others hold what is called preterism, in which the events of Revelation are a coded or symbolic description of the persecutions that the church was facing in the first century. And so most of the events in Revelation are actually referring to the first century and our past. Finally, idealism claims that Revelation describes the struggles of the church in every century. The specific antagonists may change, but the basic story remains the same. If you hold the futurist position, then you may look at something like the Euphrates River drying up and conclude that we are living in the events of Revelation. However, I'm not so sure. It's certainly possible 
of course, but I would be very skeptical of anybody who claims that they have unlocked Revelation or have figured out what everything represents. More often than not, their interpretations just so happen to line up with their political or ideological opinions that they already had. In fact, Jesus warns us against trying to figure out the day or the hour, since he's quite clear that nobody knows. And St. Paul writes to the Thessalonians to tell them that, even though Christ is coming again, they can't just sit around and wait for the end of the world. Finally, we have one more question to answer today. The question's pretty simple, but the answer's not quite as straightforward. This listener asks, is swearing a sin? Well, it depends what you mean by swearing. Sometimes we use the word swearing to refer to making a solemn promise, like an oath, like you swear an oath, right? That's not a sin, although Jesus does caution us to be careful. He says that you're probably better off just not making oaths at all, because breaking one is serious. He says it's much safer to just let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Now, I suspect that the listener who asked this question was referring to swearing as in cussing or using foul language. If that's the case, again, it would depend. As I often tell my students in class, English is a garbage language that nobody should use. One reason for that is that it's just so dang clunky and superfluous. Even though English is a Germanic language, it has stolen a whole bunch of words from other languages, especially the the Latin-based Romantic languages. This means that many, if not most, words in English have at least two basically identical versions, one that comes from the Germanic root and one that comes from Latin. Now, back in the day, if you were educated, you used the Latin words because that was the language of academia. If you were a common person, you were probably using the Germanic words. And so these Germanic-based words became known as vulgar words, which literally means common words um, or words used by commoners. This had a negative connotation because vulgar words were considered less refined or polite than the Latin words used by the smart people. For example, we have the Latin word feces or the Germanic word that I shouldn't say on air. You have the Latin word intercourse and the Germanic word that I definitely can't say on air. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that most of the words we consider swear words aren't bad in and of themselves, and so the act of saying them is morally neutral. However, that doesn't mean you're in the clear. You also have to take into account your intention when using one of these words, as well as the circumstance. Even if there's nothing inherently wrong with swearing, if we're using these words to cuss somebody out, then we have a problem. Or if we're not mindful of our surroundings and we use them at an inappropriate time, we also would have an issue. No matter what, I want to close this question with Christ's reminder that what comes out of the body, like our words, can get us into trouble. Because our words reveal our hearts. Whether it's a sin or not, we would all do well to think before we speak. That's going to do it for another question and ask episode of Bonus Points. If you have questions that you'd like to see answered on the show, you can submit them at bonuspointspodcast.com. I may not have many resources for today's episode. Again, 
the end of the marking period has really uh, done a number on my to-do list. But you never know what you'll find. I'll try to post a few. As always, a friendly reminder to subscribe or follow bonus points wherever you're listening, probably just by clicking the subscribe or follow button. It also helps when you share this show with somebody, either by sending them a link or just stealing their phone and subscribing for them. Either way, I'm Mr. Astle. Thank you both for joining us once again as we continue every episode to put out into the deep to explore the world of theology and beyond.